we've been doing a revival series and hitting various topics just to challenge our hearts to walk with the Lord better. And uh, I want to just kind of continue that theme for a couple more weeks. And uh, I've given the title today, What Does Personal Revival Look Like? Uh, sometimes it's joked around churches how they schedule a revival and people say, well, you can't schedule revival. That's just what God does. He either does it or he doesn't do it. But I would say that if you will schedule time to lay aside some of the busyness of your life and hear from the Lord, the odds are that he'll give you some personal revival. Amen. And so what happens is, is you come to church and, and, and you hear some good messages and you're challenged and you're fired up and you're excited and you leave out of here and, and you're talking about it when you go home and talk to your friends or whatever, but maybe, maybe it crosses your mind, what is that exactly going to mean in my life? Is there going to be any real lasting change in my life? What's going to be the takeaway as a result of supposedly getting fired up while I was at church for a Sunday or two Sundays or five Sundays or for whatever this time frame is and um, you know, at the end of the day, what God is interested in is just drawing us back to a relationship where we're closely walking with Him in the fellowship of the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, if you're wondering, you know, what, uh, why, why do we do that? Why do we want to walk with God? Well, obviously, there's a lot of benefits. There's personal benefits, right? I mean, if you're walking with God, you have a peace and a joy that passes understanding. I mean, the Bible makes it clear, and experience tells me at least, and I'm sure many of you as well, that uh, if, if you walk in the flesh as a born-again Christian, I mean, as, as a carnal Christian, your life truly is very frustrating. It's miserable. It's, it's frustrating. You can't find the joy and the peace that you want. You can't find the contentment and the answers that you want. You find that internal struggles constantly going on. So, man, revival just sets all that free and turns you loose to just be able to walk with God in joy. But even more importantly than that, if I could say, it's not just important personally, it's important globally. And last week we talked a little bit about one of the purposes of walking with God in the Spirit is that we fulfill the mission He's given us, that we would participate in God's mission, the Great Commission, that we would make disciples of all nations. And so last week we cleared off a space and talked a little bit about the great things God did with our mission trip, with the medical mission outreach, and, and that was a wonderful thing. In your notes I put it this way, walking with God daily gives your life significance. It gives your life significance. And, you know, I want you to understand today that what we do, we as Christian believers, in our life of ministry to others around us, regardless of what your vocation is and you draw a paycheck from, what you do in service to the Lord is so much more important. It's so much more significant then all of the rhetoric of the garbage that you hear on television all the time, of all of the other types of things that people might promote as very important. We are in a season of political elections. And, and let me just say, are you not tired of hearing constant bickering and promises that you know people aren't going to keep? I'm not picking a side. I'm just telling you the jobs that they are vying for, the jobs that they want you to cast a vote for them to be able to do, Whatever that job is as the leader of the free world, that's an important job, right? I, on the authority of the Word of God, I'm telling you what you do for the Lord is more significant than that. Because at the end of the day, if a, if a president has a term of four years or eight years or, or whatever difference they might make in the administration of this nation, and that's important, it does not compare with you being able to influence the soul of a human being for eternity. And you know that that's true. So I want you to understand that walking with the Lord and reviving your heart and being involved in God's mission, that gives your life real significance. 
And if you have a genuine repentant heart, if you are truly humbly submitted to the leadership of the Lord, well then, there will be some specific action steps that you will take. If you have found yourself reconnecting with the, with the Lord over the summer, for example, in a way that maybe has been fresh and new for you, the question you might ask yourself is, well, what's next? I mean, how can I get started to position my life in that direction so I can see the significance and the change and the effect and know that my life really matters, that I'm living for something a lot bigger than myself? And that's a great question, and that's really what I want to address today. So we talked a little bit about the importance of participation in God's mission, and so today what I want to talk about more is preparation for God's mission. And so in Luke's version of the Great Commission, in Luke chapter 24, it talks about going and making disciples of the whole world, but in Luke it says, starting in Jerusalem. And we could talk about global missions, and it's a wonderful thing to have an opportunity to be a part of, but man, if we're not doing it right here... We're kidding ourselves, right? And so thank the Lord for all of you that serve to reach out to people around us every day, but but we're going to start right here where we live. In fact, if you'll come back next week, we're going to talk more specifically about ways we can do that right here where we're at. But don't kid yourself. You need to understand, and this is in your notes as well, that the gospel ministry is spiritual warfare. It says very clearly in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not physical. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Listen, friends, don't kid yourself. Just because a warfare is not physical does not mean it's not real. It is very real. It's just not something that would be seen or touched. It's spiritual. I mean, why do you think you suffer in your life? Right? Paul alludes to that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11. He says, look, if I just went with the flow, if I just preached circumcision like all the Judaizers want me to, then I wouldn't suffer at all. But I suffer because I'm taking a stand for what's right. We suffer in our lives. Why? Because there is a genuine, real, spiritual battle that is going on. So a life of significance means that you've enrolled yourself into being a part of this battlefield and, and making a difference for the Lord. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, what government on the face of this earth would send out soldiers to battle that are untrained volunteers? I mean, nobody would do that. So why would we expect that in the kingdom of God that the Lord would send out untrained volunteers as soldiers into his his army, into his fight? Listen, there's a need to be trained. You have got to take time in your life and determine that I will be trained in the gospel ministry. And if you're going to get involved in training, that means that it's going to be a commitment of your time. It's going to be a commitment of your life. You're going to have to rearrange your schedule. It's going to require discipline. You're going to have to make some steps, some real steps, that are going to say, I'm going to rearrange what I do and how I do it so that I can receive the training necessary so that I can engage in this spiritual warfare, so that I can have a significant impact on this world that will far outlast my physical life. And that, friends, is a life worth living. That's a life that has been revived. That is a life that is connected to the life of the Lord Jesus. How do you you know that, Jeff? Well, I know that because none of those things happen naturally. The Bible says that the natural man, talking about a man who is unsaved, a man who walks in the power of his flesh, 
The natural man doesn't even receive the things that be of the Lord. In other words, it is not the natural thing for you to just want to do these things. It is a supernatural thing. It is God working in and through you. And we need to be trained to walk with God in the Spirit. It becomes the practical result of a revival in our heart. I'm, I'm thrilled when I hear people say that that message was stirring, that God spoke to my heart, that I saw something I've never seen, that it brought me to tears, that, that I made a significant decision. But if that same person then doesn't take concrete steps to develop a lifestyle that will change, does it really matter? It, it was just a fun afternoon, wasn't it? So that's what I want us to consider today because if you reject training or if you have started some level of training and decide that you're going to quit on your training, well, I mean, what kind of a soldier can you really expect to be? I mean, what kind of results can you really expect when you get out in the real spiritual battle of the Lord? Well, the good news is that here at First Baptist Church, for many, many years, we have a very well-developed and proven system of training. We call it discipleship. It's a word that's been around forever. And so, you know, I, I gave this message the title, you know, what does personal revival look like? I, I thought about titling it Counting the Cost of Discipleship because that's really what I want us to look at. And so we're going to look at three specific passages in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are three places where Luke really calls us to count the cost of discipleship. And we'll look at those as we continue on. So our first one that we'll look at, we're just going to call it basic training. And basic training around here would be what we refer to as personal discipleship. If you're new to First Baptist Church, that's literally just a system where if you're interested in learning more about the Bible, we will assign you a disciple, a brother or a sister in Christ that, that is maybe a little further down the road than you that can take a system of lessons and help you to grow and to learn um, the things that you can understand about the fundamentals of the faith. Now, before we even get into this, can I just clarify for you, as we look at these passages, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 14 and chapter 12. As we look into these passages, I want you to understand the context is discipleship. The context is not salvation. Uh, some people may be confused because there's going to be an emphasis on things like works. It's going to talk about how expensive it is for you to count the cost and decide you're going to do it. It's going to talk about your performance. It's going to talk about your discipline that's required. Well, that has nothing to do with your salvation because salvation very clearly is free. It's a gift. It doesn't require discipline. It just requires willingness, right? So we're not talking about a requirement to be saved. We're, we're talking about discipline and working out our salvation in a matter of biblical discipleship, becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to start, if you'll look with me, in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse number 54, and we're going to go near the end of this chapter here. Luke chapter 9, verse number 54. Just follow along as I read. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And it came to pass that as they went the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And so we have here a story where James and John, two of the key disciples, they, they're before Jesus, and, and they wanted to tie into this power that Jesus Christ has. And, and they wanted this power so that they could destroy their enemies. Well, that's not a bad thing. Except Jesus Christ then responds, and he rebukes them. And he rebukes them basically saying, look, your attitude needs to be adjusted. You're not really thinking this thing through the right way because you don't understand that I have not come here to destroy. I have come here to save. And you need to see how that ties in. In John chapter 10 and verse number 10, Jesus talking, he says that, look, the thief, right, the devil, the enemy, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. But I come that you might have life. And that you might have it abundantly. So James and John, you got to get away from this, you know, toast the enemy mindset. We're here to help people. So we have three specific illustrations. And in the first illustration, there's a, there's a volunteer. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, you know what? If you're going to do that, you're going to have to deny your personal comfort. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. You really want to follow me? You're going to have to count the cost. You really want to be a part of what we're doing? You need to understand that you need to have a willingness to deny some personal comfort. You're going to do without some things because you say you want to follow me. The second guy, Jesus goes to him and initiates the thing, and he says, you, follow me, follow me. And so that guy says, well, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to go bury my dad. And man, to say... No, you don't. I mean, that sounds hard, doesn't it? Let the dead bury their dead. And, and without going into a, a real detailed Bible study of this, it's very simple. If you compare the spiritual application, if you understand that there are people who are alive in Christ and there are people who are dead in Christ, believers versus unbelievers, basically what he's saying is there's a lot of things that can be taken care of in the world of lost people. But your focus has to be, your priority has to be solely on me. I have to be the first and foremost aspect of everything that is in your life. You'll notice in verse number 59 where it says, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. And then you'll read down in the next one with the next guy who says, Lord, I'll follow you. But he said, but let me first go and say goodbye to my family. And he's like, look, if you put your hand to the plow and the idea of plowing a field with an oxen or a horse and you look back, you're not going to plow that field in straight lines because you're not looking ahead where you're going. You need to have your focus solely in front of you. You need to leave the past behind. You can't put conditions on your following of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling you to discipleship and he's using these illustrations. When he wants to adjust the attitude of James and John, and when he says, look, we're not here to destroy, we're here to help, the way that you're going to prepare yourself, the way that you're going to be my disciple, is you have to have this singular focus on me, on Jesus, not on yourself. The, the me-first attitude has no place. 
And so summarizing in verse 62, Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, notice, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So the issue in basic training is fitness. And that's what you develop in basic training. You develop fitness, right? Now, I was never in the military, and my fitness certainly can be called into question. But I watch movies. I've seen, I've seen them. They make those guys run a lot and do a lot of push-ups and pull-ups and lifting weights and running in the rain and doing all kind of terrible things while some drill sergeant's screaming at them. And maybe it's not that bad anymore. I mean, everybody's got to be nice to everybody else these days. And I think in the old days, it was probably harder on soldiers. I don't know. Maybe some amens from some older folks. But um, anyways, I'm sure it'd be tough, man, if I signed. I mean, they're just, what's the goal of basic training? Well, we need to get these kids fit, right? They need, they need some fitness, physical fitness, because ultimately, it's hard work being a soldier. So it requires exercise. It requires discipline. It requires a proper diet. It, And what else do they learn in basic training? Well, they learn obedience, don't they? So you get the your your, those who are in charge of you, and they're screaming at you, and you're only allowed to say yes, sir, and all that sort of. Okay, well, you're learning obedience. You're learning a chain of command. You're learning that there's some there's there's a role and a place for you, which is nothing, and there's a role and a place for others, and you are to take your place, and you are to learn who's on your team what role the team members play, who the enemy is, and, and you learn the skill. You begin to develop these things. You develop fitness. You learn obedience. And so we see the Apostle Paul, for example, as he says over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, follow me as I follow Christ. And there's a long list of places in the Scriptures that, that talk about this in 1 Corinthians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Galatians and Philippians, and I think you have those in your notes. And so... Be followers of me, Paul said, of me. And so literally what we have is a human helper, an an illustration, an example. We have a, a human being who will take us and will say, look, I know that you may not fully understand yet what it means to just follow the Lord. So until you're capable of just following the Lord, let me help you out. Just follow me. As I follow the Lord, And then you will begin to learn the steps one by one. Well, that's what we offer in personal discipleship. Personal discipleship is a one-on-one mentorship, a tutorship, where somebody takes you and you meet together during your schedule when it fits you, typically once a week, and that individual says, basically, follow me as I follow Christ. And together we will learn the fundamentals. Together we will learn what it means to have spiritual fitness and so in First Baptist Church, and, and I actually forgot to jot them down. I, I had uh, Chris look up the stats for me. But the stats that we have are actually quite fantastic uh, concerning discipleship participation in this first level of personal discipleship. I mean, there's probably about 500 of us in this room today, and um, there's probably about 400 people that pretty regularly attend this church, if you're not full-time members of this church, that would say that throughout some point in your life, some many years ago, some recently, have completed the course of personal discipleship. I mean, we're realistically in the world of two-thirds of you will have already completed this level of basic training. I mean, if you just want to think of it that way, just look around the room, and for every three of you, 
two have already finished. I mean, it's pretty good. And so this beginning steps of training is, is critically important. It's the first step of training obedience. But it's only the first step. Because there are other steps. And so many people have opportunities now as a result to continue their training. And maybe not everybody's taking advantage of that. But I want to challenge you and encourage you to consider doing that. Because really, the other thing you learn in basic training, besides just fitness, you learn to develop character. You learn to develop character. And, and can I just tell you from experience that character is developed only when you make yourself do what you don't want to do because you know it's good for you. Or you make yourself stop doing what you want to do because you know it's not good for you. And I wish I had better news for you. I wish I could tell you that it wasn't that way. I wish that the path to to real character wasn't that way, but it is. And I know, for example, that, you know, for you teenagers, this is, this is a particular challenge for you guys because it's true for anybody of any age, certainly, but, man, as a teenager, you're at a point in, in your life where you, you're finally getting to the point where you're old enough to say, I, you know, hey, man, I've been doing mom and dad's thing for a while. It's time for me to do what I want to do. And you have to be careful with that because that's very dangerous. And sometimes you have to be willing and have enough character to say, you know what, I'm not going to necessarily do just what I want. I'm going to do what's right. And that develops character. And so these are the kinds of things that we see being developed when we're trying to grow in our discipleship and walk with the Lord. Listen, discipleship is different from salvation, remember? So as a Christian, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you can never, ever, ever lose your soul. You are eternally secure. It's the greatest promise in the world. But... Can I tell you that as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, it is possible, based on your behavior, for you to lose your money, your wife, your kids, your testimony, your joy, right? Your assurance, your inheritance, your rewards, your health, maybe even your life. So I would challenge us all to consider not just counting the cost of following Jesus, but I think it's fair to say you ought to count the cost of not following him too. Because a person who knows Jesus as Savior but refuses to walk with him puts him or herself in a position where things can go south. And it's worthy to consider the cost. And so Jesus challenges us to this all the time. That's basic training. Our second level, I'm going to go ahead and call it Officer Candidate School. Officer Candidate School. And we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 14 and we're going to look at this passage here briefly. But uh, for anybody who successfully completes basic training, we have what I'll go ahead and call officer candidate school. That means that a person becomes a candidate to become an officer, but he's not yet an officer. He still has to learn some stuff, right? But you have to finish basic training. So in our church, uh, the method of providing that is we call these classes ministry tools and training. And I think officially the deadline may have passed to sign up for the fall for MTT classes, but... You know, if you tell us today, and we'll, you, come on in. It'll be okay. We'll work it out. But the point is this. You have to completely or successfully complete the first level in order to qualify to go into the second level. That just makes sense. What do we really learn at that level? What does a person learn if he wants to be a candidate to become an officer or a leader? 
Well, they need to begin to learn not just what is right. They need to begin to learn the why behind the what. And that's the next level of understanding. And so in officer candidate school, what do you develop? You develop skills. You develop some skills. You would have developed fitness. You would have developed some character. You would have understood obedience. But now you develop some real skills. And so we're in Luke chapter 14. And uh, we're going to look at 10 or 11 verses, starting in verse number 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So the issue we're going to see in this development of skills in officer candidate school is counting the cost. That's the issue. The issue is to see whether or not you will actually begin to apply the things that you are learning. So there's some skills you need to learn. And the first skill that we see, based out of verse number 26, is a skill of discernment. It's a skill of discernment. In verse number 26, it says, Unless a man hates, and it gives a list of all your best relationships in life, all your family relationships, including your very own self. It says, if you don't hate all those people, you can't be my disciple. Now, a critic of Christianity would read that, and they would say, what kind of a sadistic tyrant is Jesus Christ to ask us to hate our family. Well, you need to understand that everything is understood within its context, amen. You don't want to take, you don't want anybody taking your words out of context. We don't want to take Jesus' words out of context either. So everything needs to be defined according to the scripture. So if we're going to define what it means to hate, we're going to go to some other places. Judges chapter 14 and verse number 16. In Judges 14, 16, we have the story of Samson and Delilah. And what we see is, is that you know the story. Delilah's trying to trick Samson into telling her, uh, you know, the, the, the reason for his strength. And when he refuses to give in to Delilah's wily, you know, manipulations against him, with, with a desire to try and trick him and use it against him and the Lord, he doesn't give in to it. Her response is, you hate me. In other words, one of the biblical definitions of hate is not giving in to the evil desires of other people. Don't give in to the evil desires of other people. Another place you might refer to is Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. And here you have Jacob, and Jacob has Rachel, and he has Leah as two of his wives, right? And Leah was less favored, and she felt as though she was hated in the sight of Jacob. Why? Only in the sense that in comparison to Rachel, whom he loved more, the love he demonstrated for Leah seemed to be as hate. 
We see Jesus give us the exact same parallel in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 37, where it's literally the same parallel as we read, if a man hate not his mother and, sister, mother and father and brother and sister. Here it says, he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy, worthy of me. So the idea, most certainly God is not telling you hate your family. Of course not. What he's saying is you need to have the skill of discerning. You need to have your priority in the right place, and you need to understand that you love the Lord more than you could possibly ever love another human being. And if you will do that, your love for your human family relationships has no lack. There's plenty to go around. It works out beautifully for everybody considered. One of the uh, adult life groups that we have with our senior citizens in this church is called the Joy Class. They chose that name because J-O-Y, many of you know, is an acronym that people use to say Jesus, and then others, and then you. <laughs> and if you keep that perspective of Jesus first, others second, and you last, well, you know what you're going to have in your life? You're going to have joy. You're going to have joy. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, just to have the discernment. Why would he do such a thing? Well, in the Old Testament, it gives us a great example. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 8, we have a, a physical playing out of what Jesus is referring to spiritually for our lives. Deuteronomy 13, part of the Mosaic law. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, the soulmate, right, entice thee secretly, saying... Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the end of one of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. It actually goes on in the law of Moses, but it says, but there's a, there's a punishment, and it's capital punishment if that happens. So spiritually speaking, the idea would be you have to learn to hate all those people or relationships should they fall in the category of those who secretly entice you to draw away from your God because the end of that life is spiritual death. Acts chapter 11 and verse number 26. Do we have that? In Acts chapter 11 verse 26 where the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. I want you to understand, who are the ones who are first called Christians in Antioch? Everybody who received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, like we use the word? No. It says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you realize that, biblically speaking, the only people who can genuinely and legitimately claim the title of Christian are people who are actually disciples? I would say that, biblically, strictly biblically speaking... If you have received Christ as your Savior, you're saved, no question about it, but you refuse to have the discipline to walk with the Lord in your life, you're a carnal, saved person, you're not really, biblically, you're not really a Christian. You say, well, that's not how we use the word. Well, that's, I don't really care how we use the word. I'm showing you how God uses the word. And I'm showing you that a disciple is a Christian, because the word Christian, they used it in a term to, to mock them. Oh, you guys who think you're just like Christ. You guys who live your life like Christ lives his life. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. So, you want to be a disciple? You want to be a candidate to continue to grow and learn? Well, you finish your basic training and you begin to learn the skill of discernment. You need to learn to hate 
anything that gets in the way of that. Oh, by the way, even your own self. Even your own self. The things that your old nature wants to do. So that rolls into our second skill, and that's the skill of denial. Because in verse 27, it says, If any man doesn't bear his cross, bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So bearing your cross, that's dying to yourself. That's hating yourself. That's putting aside all of the things that would get in the way of your spiritual fitness and growth and and being able to have a life that is truly walking in the power of the Spirit. That might include your personal opinions or your goals, your objectives, your plans, your desires. I mean, you're soldiers now. Uh, Here in the United States, they used to use the term GI, right? Government issue. Uh, Well, the Bible basically has the same parallel for us in Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, don't you even realize if you've received Christ as your Savior, you're, you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your life is not your own. You gave your life willingly over to the Lord. Oh, by the way, he gave you his life. Great deal. Good thinking. <laughs> but you have sold yourself. You've given yourself wholly to the Lord. You're not your own anymore. You're, you're a GI. You're a government issue for the government of the kingdom of God. That's who you are. And so, the skill of denial. You have to learn to deny yourself. You need to learn to get past this. You need to understand that you bear your cross. You die to yourself. The cross, the cross is an instrument of death. The cross is, you could think of it this way, where your will crosses God's will. And your will has to die. Your will has to die. So over and over again in the New Testament, we have places like Colossians 3.5, where it says, mortify your members that are on the earth. Galatians 5.19-21 tells us about what those are. Those are the works of the flesh. And in verse 24, it says that we are to crucify those works of the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 15.31, the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. Every single day I get up, I have to decide. I'm going to die to myself. And how do you do that? Well, you just make the decision that you're going to do it, like in Romans 6 and verse 11, that you reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin. That you're just going to decide. I'm just going to, I'm just going to determine that my old life just doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have a vote anymore. I'm just going to do what the Lord wants me to do. That's the skill you learn. That's the thing you have to pick up. You need the skill of discernment, who's who and who's got the priority, but the skill of denial is just as important. Because, man, that flesh is powerful. And the third skill we see is the skill of deliberation. This is the whole deal about counting the cost. And, and, and we have a couple of different examples. And one is to build something, and the other is to go to war. And so the idea is, is you, you set out on a project. You set out to start something. And the building illustration is you lay the foundation, and you start gathering some bricks, but you don't have enough to finish. And if you don't finish the project... What's the consequence? Well, in this context, the consequence is others look at you and they begin to mock you. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in this day and time in which we live, and I know that was written a couple thousand years ago, but man, the Word of God is applicable, isn't it? I mean, in the day and time in which we live today, and and we are very blessed in the United States of America, we are very fortunate with the freedoms that we possess. I understand that those things are endangered every day, and and maybe our freedoms are slipping away slowly and surely. That may be the case. Nevertheless, we we enjoy some great freedoms, and generally speaking, 
to be able to stand publicly and proclaim our unwavered faith in the Lord Jesus Christ brings no direct physical persecution against us, generally speaking. Uh, we're very, very fortunate. That is not the case all around the world. And so really, we don't even know what it means for people to attack us and, and beat us and, and persecute and kill us because just, just because we love Jesus. We don't, generally, we don't know what that means. But you know what happens in a country that is civilized and westernized like we are? What happens is, is when you begin to take a stand for the Lord, and maybe you start something, but you don't finish it, people around you, they'll start to mock you. Oh, I knew that guy. How many times have you tried to invite somebody to come to church, and they're like, oh, church. Let me tell you about the guy I know who went to church. And he's going to tell you a story about somebody who started a building project for the Lord and didn't finish, and they're going to mock him, right? And, and so... It's, it's funny today. I don't understand people. People today are more worried about somebody else saying something about them than they are worried about standing at the judgment seat of Christ. They're more worried about somebody making fun of them than they are worried about the judgment of God and righteousness. Well, if you don't count the cost, you're not going to finish what you start. The Bible is just full of illustrations. The Lord wants us to finish what we've started. So there's a skill of deliberation. Deliberate, sit down, count the cost, look at the project, see what's going on. Can I do this? Can I finish what I'm starting? Listen, I understand that in a crowd this big, this is a tough message today. I get it. These kinds of messages that I'm sharing with you today, these are the kinds of things that were on the list of the very first sermons I ever heard preached after I got saved. It helped formulate who I am, okay? The idea is this. Not everybody's going to respond today. When we're done and we're praying and we're going to ask you, come pray, come down front, pray. Not everybody's going to want to do that. Some of you are going to be like, man, I want to go to lunch. I get it. I'm not even judging you. I'm just saying, some of you, though, some of you, God's working on your heart. Some of you, you know. You know you started something with good intentions, and you know you walked away from it. And God's working on you. And you know you need to get back to it. The question, okay, maybe not everybody's going to respond today. But some will. Some will. Will you? <laughs> Is it the Marines, the few, the proud? I mean, I mean, who's going to respond? Are you really a biblical Christian? Are you really a disciple? I mean, you need to learn these skills if you want to be a good candidate to become a leader. Okay, well, the last step is literally officer training. We'll just go back to becoming an officer. Now, now you've, you've passed the phase of being a good candidate. Now we're actually going to enroll you in the actual training that it requires to produce genuine officer material, real leadership that can take troops and send them out somewhere and get new things done. So our officer training would be to prepare every, anybody and everybody who has a desire to lead in ministry. And that's not everybody, I understand. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, so you may want to flip over there and we'll get ready. But in our context, what we have as, is an in-house Bible institute. And we cooperate with other churches. It's called the Living Faith Bible Institute. And, and, the, and the classes you can sign up for online, it's a, it's a live stream Bible Institute cooperating with other churches that are of like mind and faith and 
and we teach some and they teach some and and we'll prepare you and in a in a period of four years you can finish like you would any education and be prepared for leadership and in ministry and and so this is officer training this is what it is so what is what is it that an officer really needs to learn I mean what is it that needs to be developed in the life of a true genuine leader in this battlefield for the Lord well it's vision develop vision that's what you need to have some real biblical vision why because the leader is the one who needs to see things before other people see them he needs to see the movements of the enemy that are coming against him and try and counter that before they take hold. He needs to see the dangers that other people are heading towards and warn them about those before it gets too late. He needs to see what's going on spiritually. And so in the context of setting up the actual teaching, uh, we're going to get a parable. And the parable is listed for us here uh, in chapter 12, starting in verse 36 to verse 40. So this is basically just for context. We're going to look at a few verses later. So verse 36 to verse 40. In Luke 12, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know. That if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken through. Be therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. And then Peter turns in verse 41, he says, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even unto all? And so Jesus uses parables to teach spiritual truth and to illustrate something that he ultimately wants to get through to his disciples, something that might not be obvious to just an innocent bystander that happens to overhear, but his, but his disciples ought to be able to get it. And so he uses this story, this parable, and, and, and the whole basis is watch, be ready, be alert, be looking, see what's out there, realize there's an end coming, there's going to be a, a return of the king, he's going to call things into account, there's an enemy who's trying to spoil your house, you have to be alert, you have to watch, you have to see the things that are out there. Please be ready, be alert, have your eyes open, and be prepared. That's the context of the setup. And so Peter says, are you talking to us? <laughs> Love Peter. Verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? And so that's the question that I have. It's in your notes. Who is that faithful and wise steward? Who is that guy? That's what the Lord wants to know. Who is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make, here it is, ruler. Ruler. That's a leader. The Lord is looking to place some people in leadership. And the people the Lord is looking to place in leadership have to be faithful and they have to be wise. That's what he's looking for. Who is that faithful and wise steward? He goes on in verse 43, and he says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So doing what? Well, so doing whatever the Lord told him to do. If the Lord told you to do something, 
Whenever he comes back, oh yeah, by the way, we don't know exactly when he's coming back, do we? It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be after 100 years. Doubt it. You don't know. A lot of us have been saying that for a long time. He hadn't come back yet. Some people say he's never coming back. They're wrong. Eventually he's coming back. We don't know exactly when. But whenever he does, at that moment, for each and every one of us, the scenario is going to be maybe a little bit different in circumstances. But for each and every one of us, he just wants to see, are you faithfully so doing what I asked you to do? Is that what you're doing? So who is that faithful and wise steward? So he's doing what the Lord told him to do. And what he told him to do might be, in the case of many, especially if they're working their way up still through development, to prepare. I've said this over and over again. A call to service is a call to preparation. Because if God has called you to serve him in some specific way, and if you strive to be a leader in ministry, you must submit yourself to preparation. The lesson learned is a lesson of submission to authority. And submission to authority, especially where it goes against what you might think in your mind. By the way, when a person gets to this level of development in their walk with the Lord, they know some stuff. They've come through basic training. They've come through candidate school. They've developed some skills. They understand some fitness. But they get to a point where they have their own ideas. And their own ideas are, they're just different. And at the end of the day, they still have to see that what they do is a part of the team. It's a part of of saving, not destroying. It's a part of helping. There's still some things yet to learn. So they need to be faithful. That means they need to be full of faith. Well, what do you mean full of faith? Well, I would say in the context, it's full of faith that everything will work out just fine. Yes, of course we have faith in the Lord. But the point is that you have to have faith that if I follow this track, that if I will continue so doing, that it will work out just fine. And you need to be wise. Because what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the application of knowledge. Uh, You come to a church like this and we feed you pretty good and you get a lot of good Bible studies and there's all kind of opportunities for you to understand the words of Scripture. The issue is, do you have the wisdom and understanding to apply it in your life and to see real life change. That's what we need to see. This only comes with age. Job chapter 12 and verse number 12, it says, With the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days comes understanding. And I know, you get the teenagers growing up, and you get the young people who, you know, they want to be an adult overnight, but you can't. It takes time. There are growth pains It takes time to grow up. It it takes time to become ancient. It takes time to have length of days, right? Job 28, verses 12 and 13. I love this. But where shall wisdom be found? Maybe not where you think. And where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, and notice, neither is it found in the land of the living. Now, I'm going to say something, and I want you to not misquote me. I want you to try and understand what I'm going to say. Where is wisdom found? Where is its place? And and the standard First Baptist Church faithful person answer would be the Bible. That's a great answer. But in light of Job 28, can I I just hear me? Is Is the Bible found in the land of the living? 
Yes, it is. It, the Bible is it's in my hand right now. You have one in your hand right now. So the Bible is found in the land of the living. So just having a copy and reading it and memorizing it, those are wonderful. Man, those are great. But that's not wisdom. That's knowledge. And wisdom comes from above. Wisdom comes from the sanctuary. Wisdom comes when you connect with God in the Spirit. Yes, through His Word. Never contradicts His Word, of course. But you connecting with God directly over time as He works the Word of God through your life, the washing of the water of the Word through the circumstances of your life as you live lengths of days and come across needs in your life and pray to God for answers and he shows you answers and it takes time. True wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living alone. You've got to connect with God. Or there's no way to get it. Are we okay? Are we on the same page here? I still got a job next week so far? Yes, through the word of God. Yes, wisdom is personified as the word of God in the Proverbs. I'm aware of that. But understand... Just because you have a Bible on your shelf, just because you believe it's God's word, is not enough to give you wisdom. In this story, there's the, the ruler of the house, and, and he's going he's gonna to come back, and he's going to call him into account. And, and we know the Lord is the ultimate one who's going to come back. It's, it, it, he's going he's to come back when he's ready. We don't know exactly when. The timing of that is his business. He wants to find us faithfully doing whatever it is he's asked us to do. And if he does, he says, well, then that guy, that gal, is a ruler. They're a ruler. And comparing Scripture with Scripture in the context of a church context in, in the body of Christ, Hebrews 13 and verse number 7 defines for us exactly what that means. Remember them which have the rule over you. Who are they? Well, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So rulers are those who speak to you and teach you and feed you from the word of God, who cast vision for faith, and who are still human beings. You consider the end of my conversation. You may not like it. You don't have to like everything in the conversation of my lifestyle. You just have to consider it. But you're supposed to follow the faith. That's what you're supposed to do. Why? Because the, the leadership is the leadership, and the word that God uses is rule. Verse number 17 of the same chapter, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. Nobody else should make you submit to anybody. You should do it yourself. Why? For they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account. Those are the rulers, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. So the big question, who is that faithful and wise steward? Well, the answer, one who knows his Lord's will and prepares himself. Verse 46, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now, I referred to this a little bit last week, and I'll not spend a lot of time on it. 
But who is the faithful and wise steward? Well, that's a person who knows his Lord's will. What is God's will? Well, it's that we make disciples of all nations, right? That we participate in the Great Commission. We know his will. That is very clearly his will for our life. Among other things, I get it, a life of holiness and and a walk with him. I get that. But in the world of our battlefield, in the world of our service, it is the Great Commission. That's it. That's God's will. It's very simple. Well, then he wants us to prepare ourselves. We, there is a time of preparation. A call to service is a call to preparation. And so you need some quality training for a lifetime of service. It requires hard work. It requires discipline. By the way, discipline is the root of the word disciple. If you want to be a disciple, you need discipline. It requires insight. It requires wisdom. Because we're called to bear fruit, and we're called to bear fruit that remains. We're not called just to be busy. It's easy for a guy to forsake training, to quit on his training, to run out early on his training and say, I'm ready, just get me out of here. Time's wasting. The Lord might come back. We don't have time. By the way, all of us that are older when we were younger said that. We've all said that. I've said that. Because the Lord's coming back, I don't have time. And then there are people who do that, and then they run off on their own, and they do whatever they want to do. And what happens is, nine times out of ten, they're just busy. They're very busy. They're nice guys. They have good intentions. They're very busy. But what they're not is producing fruit that remains because they missed the faithful and they missed the wise. They missed it. And so God says, I want the fruit to remain, John 15, 16. By the way, by the way, there is a millennial kingdom application to this ruler thing. So if the Lord comes back while I'm still in school, for example, Okay, well, there's still a ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And that's based on rewards of how we've performed in our life before him. Let me just say this. I want to throw this out for your consideration. Have you ever considered that maybe, just maybe, let's say that a young man or a young lady is in their training. They desperately want to go and produce fruit for a lifetime open up new fields of evangelism and start new churches and do wonderful things for the glory of God with all the perfect attitude in the world. And they're in training, and it just so happens, because there will be people in this category, it just so happens while they're, you know, they're in year three of their training, and the Lord comes back. You know, the person who's in that boat will be like, oh, man, maybe, I don't know. Is it possible that the Lord who knows all, of course, understands where you're at in your timing, the the timing of when things happen, when you were born and how you got to where you are today. That's out of your control. Is it possible that the Lord who calls time and comes back and cuts off time according to his will knows what you would have done if you would have had the time? and still rewards you as though you did it? Is that possible? I mean, why would we want to short-circuit the system as though God's not able to work it out? I don't understand. Why are we talking about all this stuff? Well, you've got to talk about something. <laughs> what does real revival look like? Okay, I have in your notes 1 Corinthians 3. If a guy doesn't prepare himself, there's a beaten. Okay, the idea is there's some punishment, there's some loss. First Corinthians 3, you'll suffer loss if you don't serve the Lord like you're supposed to. 
Okay, well, what does real personal revival look like? Well, it, it, we get fired up, we get, we get excited about the Lord, we repent of some sins, we make some serious decisions, but then we take action steps and we begin to position our lives in a way that we're actually going to grow and make a difference. That is an adult reaction to a serious situation. I've said before, uh, this, I, I didn't originate this little saying, I just like it. What you believe is what you live, and all the rest is just religious talk. It's just religious talk. If you don't live it, it's just fake. So, in conclusion, true personal revival includes a resurgence of the life of God through your life. How does that happen? Well, similarly, like we referred to, John 6, 63 It's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, Jesus said, they are spirit and they are life. You have to figure out how to get this book into you. And you connect with God and through the spirit and through his word, you become like him. But don't kid yourself. If you're not willing to count the cost and take real steps to allow God's word to work in you, to work through you, you're not revived. You're not. And you may find yourself in the category of the church that's in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. A lot of people got a name but not necessarily the real life of Jesus Christ actively flowing and manifesting itself through their lives. Listen, by the end of this month, we're going to be cranking up a whole bunch of new Bible classes, a whole bunch of new opportunities. Specifically, the last two levels of the Ministry Tools and Training and Living Faith Bible Institute begin on a schedule near the end of August into the beginning of September. You're either in or you're out for this year. You can sign up now. The personal discipleship, the one-on-one tutoring, is always available at any time, anywhere at all. So if you would just at any time say you're interested, we will do our best to hook you up as quickly as possible and get you started. But we are entering back into the, if you have kids, the school year, the school season. And we take the summer off. Everybody has a well-deserved break. We all needed it. But soon enough, it's time to get busy again. It's time to get into this stuff. And, and we get fired up in church with revival messages, but man, if, if we're not willing to respond to a message like this and say, I will count the cost and I will do what the Lord is asking me to do, well then, you know, have a nice lunch. The, the Lord is looking for those that will respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,